All right, 2.0, welcome. And tonight's topic is called to excommunicate or not. Uh, let's begin with the word of prayer. Lord, love you and seek you and need you. Grateful for all that you do. And just pray that we will be mindful of your presence in our lives and not just live for ourselves, but uh, to try to do what you want us to, and, but with the freedom and, and uh, liberty that you give us. We love it and we're thankful in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, last show of the year, special thanks to all of you. Our uh, YouTube subscribers are over 5,000, uh, and uh, we're grateful for that and, and for the supporters through prayer. Share the show with your friends, people who uh, support us financially. Especially want to put uh, thanks out to our volunteers uh, and staff, Derek and Danita and their family for all that they uh, do, and, uh, and Kathy Maggie, of course, and Linda Cassidy and Seth Motor. Wendy of the Jensen's, uh, Steve Utley, his musical genius, Michael Anderson out in Sweden, Michael Lake in England, of course, Mary and Mallory and Cassidy and Delaney, uh, you are the lifeblood. Dave's running the, uh, the Bible study here Thursday nights, which is a subtext of everything, but does it and, and things happen there. Guys are the lifeblood and uh, we're reaching people far and wide. It's growing, growing more and more and and uh, so we're just so grateful. And we also want to thank our para ministry uh, friends, Bishop Earl, ex-Mormon Files, and uh, Warren Puckett of Breaking Bread, Danny Larson, Talking to Mormons. That's a site that's just come up. You've got to check that out. Very interesting. And Jana Page with Conversations in Hope. You're going to be hearing more about those para ministry uh, uh, associations in the year to come. I uh, want to point out that we have three websites that have been totally revamped. Uh, check out the websites. All you got to do is go to hotm.tv, uh, hotm.faith. Either one's going to take you there, and there you can get everything. You can reach our campus uh, website. You can reach Christianarchy Today. You can reach HOTM 1.0, HOTM 2.0. There's also a book now that uh, we're giving out to people through a PDF or, or through an ebook form that's free to you. And uh, you want to understand more about what we're about, download that baby, free, read it. It's 400 pages. It's volume one. It's called The Christian Anarchist Crookbook, volume one. And it's uh, how to detect a, a religious crook and what uh, the Bible says about topics A through M. N through Z is coming out next year. Uh, so the websites are just fantastic, put together by Michael and uh, uh, on his own dime and own time. Grateful for that. Additionally, everything we're doing has been integrated by Wendy and uh, Seth on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Uh, you can find us there and that YouTube channel. Subscribe, just hit subscribe. You join us, you get notifications of the information that's going out. It's a growing movement. People are getting tired of the way things have been done, but they don't really know what else you can do and be in harmony with the Bible. And that's what we're trying to show them. Let me briefly tell you, HOTM.TV, uh, you get HOTM 1.0, which is everything Mormon, 500, about 500 shows, hour-long shows, un unbelievable amounts of information about Mormonism versus uh, biblical Christianity. Then we have HOTM 2.0, and we have 10 shows under our belt for that. That's this radical new introduction, Steve Utley jamming it out, me dancing there like a fool in a wig, like a crazed Martin Luther. Uh, and then we have campuschurch.tv, and we go through books of the uh, Bible. We've done the New Testament. We've gone through a lot of books there. And you can get verse-by-verse -verse teachings through a book of the Bible. Sit down, open your Bible. It's free. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to pay anything. It's there for you to take, and you can learn. You can disagree. You can agree. You can join our online community of uh, believers who watch campus live on Sundays at 10 a.m. Mountain Time or 2.30 p.m. for meet. Uh, it's all there archived, and then we have uh, that other w uh, website, Christianarchy Today. It's new, and one day we're going to take the content of that, and we're going to focus it all in about a year at a specific youth-targeted uh, group, so uh, aimed at the young, college-aged. And uh, so finally, in six weeks, on February 13th, 2018, from 7 to 10 p.m. here in the church studio, we're going to have James White of Alpha and Omega Ministries. He's a world-renowned uh, apologist, debater, 
uh, very good debater uh, toward things. He's going to have a different experience when he comes to Heart of the Matter to debate me and clear me up on all my opinions that are errant. Uh, he's doing it very nicely. It's not a combative thing, but he's going to realize, I think, that he's seen something different that he hasn't seen yet uh, coming out from the ministry. So it ought to be a great event, but the thing that I'm mentioning this for now is to have you come and join us. But we're going to make an announcement on that night of a new para-ministry we've been working on for a year. And uh, it's all done. Seth has created it. It's beautiful. It is going to have some real application. So that'll be another quiver in the, uh, of, in the, another arrow in the quiver, another quiver in the arrow. Strike the second one. All right. Getting involved in ministry and building the new sites. Michael and I have been talking a bit, and uh, he's the brother in Sweden, and he brought something out that I hadn't thought of. And now that I've embarked on it and started thinking about it, um, it may be one of the top five things to discuss, and so I'm going to cover it tonight and next week. I think it really needs to be understood. Michael said, in effect, that one of the things that antagonists against us and critics and apologists are frequently telling people, they justify this and they say, part ways with them. Don't have anything to do with them. Uh, and they will say that toward other people, for instance, in a church. If somebody is a whore or somebody is a drunkard, or somebody is a whatever, they'll say, cut them out, be excommunicate, disfellowship yourselves from them. And they have biblical justification for saying this, because there are passages which we're going to read in the New Testament, where the apostles tell believers to actually do that. And so by quoting these New Testament uh, scriptures, where the apostles give this advice, believers today are still doing it, and, and so, if an individual believes that the Bible was written to them today, 2017, Bible in hand, apostles wrote to them, then, uh, and, that, and if they believe Jesus is still coming back, he hasn't come back yet to get his church, rapture it from the earth, then there's a really good reason that we do excommunicate and we do disfellowship uh, ourselves from people who are either in sin, as, as it were, or are heretical and, and coming up with pro uh, problems in the body. That's the context. If Jesus has not taken his church, and if um, he is going to do that, and the Bible was written for us to read and follow exactly, then by golly, we better do it. I understand the zealots who would then say that. So you're in a church and you find out in the church that Sister Smith uh, is sleeping with Brother Jones and you confront them and they say, well, we're in love. Then we cut them out and we disfellowship and you don't eat with them. You don't talk to them. You find out someone's had an abortion. You don't do this. You find out someone's a homosexual. You do not have fellowship with them. You find somebody is teaching what the apostles would call heresy. You cut them out of the body because uh, that's what the apostles taught. So in my estimation, the passages used to justify excommunication all fall under the giant umbrella that we would call church discipline. It's a big thing still today, church discipline. And many Christians and pastors not only say that it's applicable, they try to implement church discipline today upon their flock under the auspices that the Bible is still materially applicable to them and Jesus is coming back to gather his church, so therefore that church better be ready you see, without spot, as Revelation said. The church has to be ready for him to come and take it. And if it's not, he's going to leave it behind. Therefore, you would excommunicate and disfellowship people from uh, that stuff. So there are really two general categories of church discipline. The first category scripture talks about is ending fellowship with sinful people. All right. And the second is ending fellowship with heretics or people who are causing division and strife. So they're kind of the same, but sinful people, lust of the flesh, stuff like that, and then heresy and strife. And the passages about parting company and having no fellowship 
excommunicating with sinners begins, we're just going to, that doesn't really begin, there's some passages in the, in the Gospels, but begins with 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And in that chapter, there's a dude who is a, a son who is guilty of sleeping with his wife's, with his father's wife, is how it says. In the church of Corinth, there was a son guilty of sleeping with his father's wife. Now, it's probably his stepmother, not his real mother, but let's just be really egregious and say it was his mom. All right, it doesn't tell us otherwise. It just says he was sleeping with his father's wife. And uh, so really bad. And Paul says, listen, I wrote an epistle to you. He, he says this at verse nine. I wrote an epistle to you, which we don't have. And it said, don't keep company with fornicators. Okay, don't keep company. So there's the first thing that we have. Don't keep company with fornicators. So look around in your church and decide who's a fornicator. Find out. Don't keep company with them. That's biblical. And then two passages later, he says, but now I've written you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a, any man who's called a brother, if he's a fornicator, if he's covetous, an idolater, a railer, a drunkard, or an extortioner with such and one do not eat. Don't sit at a meal with them. You go to the big Christmas the big church Christmas party and sitting across the table is a guy who got drunk the night before. Do not eat with them. It's clear. Still applicable. Most ardent Bible believers say, yes, it is. If it is, are you doing it? That's the other side to this. If you think Jesus is coming back and if you think the Bible was written to you and you are keeping company with people who are falling under those things, you are wrong. So you can't, you don't get to pick and choose. You have to say either it was written to me, he's coming back to get his church, I better start doing this. Or you say there's another reason out there that I'm not doing it and you got to find out what that is. Uh, the next one, speaking of the, the kid who sleeps with his dad's wife, Paul writes, deliver such a one to Satan for destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul's advice was, look, give them up, give that guy up to Satan. Whatever that means, we don't know. It means cut him out of fellowship, certainly. Does it mean turn him over to the wiles of the flesh? Because Paul says he'll be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus, but he will be destroyed in his flesh. That's the punishment. Okay, you got all that? Another biggie. Ephesians 5.11, Paul writes, Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. So on blogs and all the th I don't know what you do. All the things that you're back and forth, whatever it's called. In those things, we have people who justify their very existence by reproving everybody. Because that's what it says in Ephesians 5.11. Don't have fellowship with the what is perceived as the unfruitful works of darkness, which I believe what they're doing is an unfruitful work of darkness, but then you get into the whole, but, but reprove them. So they go about reproving everybody under the sun. Then we have a related passage, 1 Corinthians 10, 20, Paul says, and I would not that you should have fellowship with devils. So we have a local apologist, uh, not apologist, a uh, street preacher guy. He has lately called me a devil, a demon. So I guess that's another justification to not fellowship with me. So contextually, these passages are pretty much saying people who are involved in sin do not participate in fellowship with them. Another biggie, 2 Corinthians 6.14, Paul writes, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion has light with darkness? So we have reason why some Christians remain insular, and they do not associate with non-Christians because of that passage. What do you have in common with darkness? You're a, a believer. You're a child of light. So do not be unequally yoked. There is no right. There is no fellowship with the unrighteous and the righteous. And that's that's scriptural, right? Back to Ephesians 5, Paul says, Let no man deceive you with vain words, because of these things come before the wrath of God of disobedience. Be ye not for partakers with them. 
another justification in the Bible that people today use for not partaking. You know, you invite them to the party. I'm sorry, we can't come. They don't even respond, probably. Or you say, hey, do you want to have lunch? Mm, I just can't. You know, we used to be such good friends. I'm sorry. You know, it's, it's nothing. They don't even give any communication because there's passages that say you shouldn't even communicate with them. And, you know, big stuff. So, uh, it's clear. The New Testament believers are not to have fellowship, break bread, eat with sinners. And that's the first category of justified biblical excommunication. All right? It's there. It's there. Can't escape what it says. Category two, heretics, disputers, and the like over here. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, Paul says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves. This is a big one used against me. You withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly. I don't, but they say I do, so they get, they get to do this. And not after the tradition which he received from us. That's the justification. So taken by itself, these words clearly indicate that if a brother walks disorderly, whatever that means, and not after the tradition of the apostles that the apostles gave, then believers are to withdraw themselves from that brother. And this is one that is constantly used. And why I have so many people who used to be friends and uh, would talk to me, etc., now don't even, will not even speak. They use this as the justification. Coming more to the point, Paul says in Romans 16, 17, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. Another justification, pretty strong, huge, used by believers today. Make no mistake, Paul wrote this. And it was sound biblical procedure. In Titus 3.10, we read, A man that is a heretic, after the first and second admonition, after the first and second giving him counsel to change his heretical ways, reject. Yeah. So, uh, since I have been conveniently labeled a heretic, it's very easy for people then, using the Bible, to say, we reject you. We will have nothing to do with you. So if you really start thinking about it, we have a truckload of reasons why not to be around anybody except those who maintain what is established as orthodoxy, and we should not be really rubbing shoulders with anyone who doesn't have their fleshly life in order. That is what Paul is saying here, and I'm not making it up. It's there. So if it's right, we should be doing it. If it is contextually correct, it should be done, right? One last one, Second John, he says, If there comes any among you and brings not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him God's speed, for he that bids him God's speed is a partaker of his evil deeds. So that, that's what has caused many evangelicals to say when the Mormon missionaries knock on their door, Hi, I'm sorry, we want nothing to do with you. Uh, well, you have a nice day. Godspeed to you. Nothing back. Because they think if they say Godspeed back, then, according to the Bible, they are a partaker of the Mormon's deeds by being friendly to them. So it, what it does is it builds this fire for zealotry like no other. And it's built upon this idea because all of those things, if you really look at them, and I'm going to get to this next week, they're, they're kind of up to the person who's deciding. I mean, what is disorderly? What is heretical? What is it when we say, when they bring not this doctrine, what doctrine was John talking about? Or is it a blanket thing that we just don't bid anybody God's speed who teaches something or has a message we don't like? So if we really get serious about it, we really could break ourselves up into two camps. One camp believes in being Christian asses to everybody else and treating them like they are the scum of the earth, <clears throat> like they have no reason for any fellowship, that if they have ideas that are different or they've fallen into sin or if they want that you cut them out 
and you get the church to be in a state of purity and you maintain that because Jesus is coming back to get his church. Or you take an option that says, wait, something in me says, I'm going to love people. And I am going, even though it says this in the Bible, clearly, I'm going to choose to have fellowship with my pagan, uh, with my Satan-worshipping nephew. And we're going to go out to Carl's Jr. and we're going to talk about his views on Satan. And I'm going to love him irrespective of, and I'm going to love my homosexual neighbor. And I'm going to go to their house for the Christmas party and I'm going to drink their punch and we're going to talk and I'm going to be their friend. But, or I'm going to bid Godspeed to the missionaries who come. Godspeed and bless you and what the good things you're doing, brother. Whatever it is. You're going to choose that road or you're going to choose this one. Now we have a whole bunch who choose this one. And they are effers, in my opinion. They are just people you don't want to join up with. And it's, it's horrible because they represent using the Bible and the words of Paul, and they, they use these passages to justify their efferness. And, and they, they stand so proudly like scribes and Pharisees, just, hey, it says it here. I'm not going to bid you a good day. I'm not going to sit down with you at a meal. You're a fornicator. You're a this. And it tells me I shouldn't. And the Bible says it. And I believe it. And that's it. You know? And, and you know, the way I'm doing it, it really sounds ugly. And if you take a sound bite of this, I look like I'm demon possessed. But you have to ask yourself, are they right? I mean, it's in the Bible, isn't it? We do follow it, don't we? So what are we to say? So uh, the question tonight is, are the instructions that I just read to you contextually applicable to the body of believers today? Not according to your opinion or tradition or my opinion or tradition, but what does the Bible tell us? Are they contextual? The answer is so multifaceted and so it takes such effort to get to that people just say, I'm going to blow the Bible off. I don't care if it says that. I'm going to be nice to everybody and I'll let God deal with me. Or they say, I'm going to stick to it and I'm not going to think. I'm just going to do it. And I'm going to be that way because I'm going to justify myself by the words written in this book. And we have that, those groups pretty much going justification with guilt that comes with it, maybe I'm wrong, and then sticking to it like a scribe and saying, I'm right because it says, and this, 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 and this. And every time you counter, shouldn't you be nice to the homosexual? It says right here, you see. So most of us remain so convinced that what Paul has said to have direct application to us now, they just feel so guilty for, they're not sure so they write their own rules. They think they're writing their own rules. And they're nice to people, justifying it because Jesus was nice to the sinners, even though Paul says differently about what you're supposed to do in the church. And what can be proven by the scripture? Let me put it this way. This side, that it had application, it has zero application to us now outweighs this side by the Bible so heavily, you won't believe it. But because it's written there, this side seems to trump everybody else in the argument. Well, what does it say? I just go by the Bible, right? So let's go to the whiteboard, and I'm going to show you the side that supports the, taking the Bible literally as if it applies to us now. There are, I think, five. And only one of them really is in the Bible. Only one can really be used as a justification, and it's a stretch. Okay, so i got to take one more drink. When you have a sore throat, vodka is not good for the throat. But Everclear is better. Just kidding. All right. This is not fun to do in front of the camera. <laughs> okay.
Using the Bible, a justification for excommunication. Number one, the early church fathers, church fathers, quoted most of the Bible in their writings. Okay? You might say, what does that have to do with anything? I praise God that the early church writers said, Matthew said this, and Paul said that, and Peter said that. And if we take all the early church writers' writings, that we can compile most of the New Testament. In fact, probably all of it. But what does that have to do with it being applied to us today? It really doesn't have anything to do with it being applied to us today. It's just that the early church fathers cited those letters. Okay? Number two, most of the content was available to some people by late second century. So we have a compilation of the New Testament that was pretty much available within about 200, 250 years, agreed upon. This is our New Testament. I praise God for that. Love the Bible. Read it daily. But what does it have to do with it being applicable to us? Just because it was compiled and known then, what does it have to do with that? All right? Third thing, and this is the biggest one from the Bible that supports that what is written in the New Testament is for us today. This is the coup de grace. Ready? And it's 2 Timothy 3.16. And what does 2 Timothy 3.16 say? All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. That's what it says. Paul was writing to Timothy then. It was that, that epistle, that letter was written to Timothy. This is in it. Paul telling Timothy that. And he says, Timothy, you've known the scripture since you were a child, meaning you've known the Old Testament since you were a child. And then he says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And so we, we take that and say, okay, all scripture, New Testament's considered scripture. Therefore, it is good for these things. Therefore, it is applicable to us today. And therefore, when it talks about excommunication, it is good for reproof and doctrine and instruction. So therefore, it must be. And there is the one passage out of all of it that tells us it has application to us today. All right. The question I would ask, though, is are there scriptures in the New Testament or are there passages that are not inspired? Are there things that do not have application to us today, even admitted by the most faithful biblical readers? And the scholars will say yes. There are things that do not have application to us today, but it becomes a pick and choose. Because it's in scripture, but they'll say, well, that doesn't have application. So it creates a problem just in and of itself. But that is one of their strong supports. So we got to give it. The fourth one is the Protestant reformers. We're moving all the way out to 1530, a little bit before. They said sola, or is it solas scriptura? You know what that means? Scripture alone. And they said this in the face of the Catholic Church. They said, listen, we're not going to listen to your traditions and your fake authority over men as popes and priests. We are going to take the scripture. It is our sole source of everything, and we're going to read it, and that is how we're going to govern ourselves. Therefore, when you read something about excommunication of the sinners and the heretics, you excommunicate because it's in the scripture. And the early church fathers, in the way, all the way as late as the 1530s, came up with that one. All right? That's it. There it is. Seriously, there's, there's not much more a person can use to justify that the New Testament uh, was written for us to go by and excommunicate people by, even though it was compiled and written to an audience 2,000 years ago. Okay, not much more. Yet online, people are citing chapter and verse as if it were a law and excommunicating and disfellowshipping from congregations around the world still because we, you know, Sally had a fling with Johnny in the back of the car, and she's not repentant of it. So she's brought before the church, and the church excommunicates her, and Sally's parents weep, and Sally leaves the, the, the church, Mormon and or Christian, and never comes back, because she's been disfellowshipped. That's how it works, right? So the question becomes, is there evidence that suggests 
within the Bible that it was never, ever, ever intended to be this way for us today. And the evidence on this side far outweighs these measly four points. Far outweighs it. But we ignore it because it's just not convenient to think about. And we justify sola scriptura by ignoring the preponderance of evidence on this side. Now, I always have to pause because everyone says I don't just watch campus. We study the Bible. We teach it the best we can. I love it, but it's a spiritual map for individuals. It is not a didactic manual that people have to go by any longer. It's a spiritual map at best. So I'm going to start with the internal evidences of the Bible. And then next week, I'm going to give you the external evidence of the Bible that support the idea that it's a fulfilled history and that it has spiritual application to the individual, but has no application to the group any longer. And I'm going to begin with the single most important passage of Scripture in the entire New Testament. In fact, it's the most important passage of Scripture for us today in the entire Bible. It doesn't talk about gospel, love, God, grace. It talks about nothing of that. But what makes it the most important verse is, one, it's been overlooked, and two, it tells us exactly, right then and there, who the Bible was for. And that passage is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. Okay? So... I'm going to teach it to you, and we'll see how our time is, and then we'll go to the phones. You read this passage. You read it especially in the Greek from the literal. Just read the literal Greek translations, Young's literal translation or Weymouth's literal translation. King James will also suffice, but the King James does, has a problem with a word in it. We'll talk about that. But you just read that single verse, and you study what it means to you, and you will realize that this is the way to go. All right, so let's talk about it. Paul is talking to believers where, of course, at Corinth. And they have some problems. We got a son sleeping with his dad's wife, right? So he goes on and he says, Now, brethren, you shouldn't be ignorant of what our forefathers did in the wilderness, the Jews, anciently. When they were led out of Egypt and they wandered around and Ten Commandments, don't be ignorant of those stories. And he said, What they experienced crossing the Red Sea, eating meat, drinking, were all sample stories for us to learn by. He goes on at verse 5 and he says, But with many of them, back in the Old Testament, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples, Paul says, to those guys in Corinth. These things were our examples to the intent that we today should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And then at verse 7, he says, neither should we be idolaters, as they were idolaters. And he says, neither should we commit fornication, as they committed fornication. And neither let us tempt Christ, as uh, they were destroyed by serpents when they tempted. And then in verse 10, he says, and we shouldn't murmur either, because they murmured and were destroyed. So Paul is simply giving Old Testament stories, and he says, listen, believers at Corinth, we should look at those examples and we should say we shouldn't do, we should learn from those things, right? Then we come to that verse, the single most important passage in all of the New Testament, where Paul says, Now, all these things which he had decided that happened in the Old Testament happened unto them, children of Israel. For examples, in other words, everything that happened to the children of Israel were stories and types and pictures and shadows to teach the New Testament church. That's what he says there. For they are written for our admonition. Paul says those things were all written in the Old Testament for our, he's pointing to himself there and the, and the people at Corinth, for our admonition. Now hang on. Upon whom our, 
living here today, 2,000 years ago, Paul says, upon whom the ends of the age did come. So what he says is all that stuff was written for our admonition, our admonition, upon whom the end of the age did come. Do you know what he's saying there? He gives us proof in that passage right there that everything the New Testament and Old Testament was about fell upon them. That was the end of that age. It did come to them while Paul was writing this epistle to the people at Corinth. It did not come to us. It came. The end of the age came to them. Now, the King James translates it, the end of the world has come. But that's improper. Because it's not cosmos there, it's aeon. So it's the end of the age, the age of what? The age of the law, the age of the prophets, the age of the temples, the age of the commandments written in stone, the end of all of that age that, that the whole Bible talks about came to an end with them. That is our best proof in the New Testament. Did the advice the apostles gave to those people then, was it important for them in that age where everything was ending? It was vitally important for them to excommunicate. It was vitally important for them to not have fellowship because the church was Christ's bride. And they were having difficulty coming upon them from every direction. The Romans, the Jews, infighting, Gnosticism. And so it was sin that had to be kept. And so they stuck together by faith and they say, stay strong. And if someone comes in and starts preaching this crazy, get rid of them. We've got to stay strong. Why? Because Christ is coming back to take his church at the end of the age of which we are and he's going to remove that bride from the earth, and he'll fulfill everything at that point. So if you want to be part of that group that's saved, be good. Hang in there. Don't go off the ways of the way all these people are preaching. Don't get all liberal in your thoughts and all liberal in your lives. And, 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 but these plain, simple, contextual, historical facts are completely ignored by this side, and instead they say, God said it. I believe it. That settles it. And they then justify themselves in treating people today under the umbrella as if we're still waiting for him to come back and take his church. And that we're still under apostolic authority to protect the flock against the Romans and the Jews and the infighting. You don't have to worry about that. You go into a church today, I mean, like the mega churches especially, but even if you come to campus, we're a small little, we don't know who's fornicating. We don't know who's sleeping with their mother. We don't, I mean, we don't know who's gotten drunk the night before. We're in the body of Christ, saved by grace through faith. We're here to love each other. And in that love, people are uplifted and they want to leave their sins behind. That's the age we're in. And it was proven right there. So this other way is a recipe for hate. It's a recipe for ecclesiastical abuse. It's a recipe for ostracization. It is just not right. But there's more. Did you know that all the Old Testament prophets and John the Baptist and Jesus and the apostles all spoke of the end of that age being right then and there? And that the, uh, the prophets of the Old Testament spoke about it coming in the future. John the Baptist said the axe is laid at the tree. Get ready for the Messiah. He's here for his church. Jesus said, it's going to be one generation and I'll be back. The apostles said, it's coming. Get ready. It's at hand. It's right now. The culmination of the age is upon us right now. All within that book that we read. All for them historically. Not for us now. Right? So, what did God... So that's the first one. And that was First Corinthians. Then, what did God say... It would be like at the end of the age. What does God say would happen once that occurred? In scripture, he says in Hebrews chapter 8 and 10, Behold, the days come, say the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them out of the land of Egypt, 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, and that's anyone who believes they're made a member of the house of Israel. After those days, after that age, I, I add, saith the Lord, I will put, ready, my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. And I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest, and I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. Yeah, no more of the excommunication. No more of the disfellowship. No more of that. In the day when he writes his law upon the hearts and minds of people, I'll be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more. The policing's done in that age. It's over, you see. But we skip that. We just want to see what Paul was doing to a church at that time that had a completely different context. This would be the time, it goes all the way back nearly 2,000 years, when the reign of God, the kingdom of God, would be established here upon the earth. And its members would be people who believe. And God writes his laws on their minds and heart, and he, he sanctifies them by their faith and, their gra- and his grace, and he brings them along. And there's no need for all the worry because Christ isn't coming back to take the church. It's, it's an age of grace. It's his kingdom reigning in the hearts of people. It's not a kingdom reigning in the walls of a a four-walled brick and mortar. Uh, But until the end of that age came, the church was under heavy fire. And so in that heavy fire, the apostles came in and they said, look, we've got to tighten up the ship because if we don't, you're not going to make it and you're going to get wiped out with everybody else in Jerusalem. We want you to be part of the bride that Christ comes and takes. So Jesus elected those 12 apostles to come and teach, and they did. This is the point of it all. In times of war, there are things that occur in societies that aren't applicable when war is not happening. They were in warfare beyond belief. In fact, Revelation tells us that this was the time that Satan was actually cast out of heaven because Christ had overcome everything. Satan was cast out of heaven where he had access to God and he was ticked because he knew his time was short and he was roaming about in that age trying to destroy the saints. And he was doing it through Nero and other uh, uh, leaders of the uh, Roman uh, emperorship. And so Satan's roaring against the, the, the church and the Romans and the Jews. That age was under tremendous fire. Jesus is getting his apostles to say, hang on, I'm going to save you, right? We're out of that. We are out of that age so blatantly clearly that now we're at a place where it's all individual with God. And he writes his laws upon your hearts and your mind. And so when you mess up with the, with the girlfriend and, and you've sinned and you've lived in sin for a while, his, his, his laws are on your heart and it's calling to you and you know and you humbly come back to him and you're warmly embraced by other believers who too struggle with their flesh and fail and we love each other and it gives us encouragement and all of that rhetoric on this side is done away with in that age. You know, what would you do if Trump came out and said, we have a ban on yeast and alcohol? Tomorrow we get these announcements. And, and listen, I want everyone to have a, a garden. And uh, you can't, nylons are no longer available for women. And, uh, you know, there's no sausage making anymore. And um, if you can, kill your household pets. And then finally, no more sliced bread. What would you think of Trump? You'd think, well, this is really ridiculous. What are you doing? And Trump says, well, listen, this, these things were all in place during the second, uh, First and Second World War. Why? Because slicing bread took up a different kind of packaging. You could wrap whole loaves easier in the time of war when, when uh, uh, products were scarce, so you could use less paper, and uh, killing your household pet would save on food that you're feeding them. So there was a thing that said, if you can uh, kindly kill your pet, do it. And, 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 and sausage making was the casings were needed for other things in the war. And nylon's the same thing. And gardens so that you wouldn't have to rely on the grocery stores. Everything was wartime advice. For Trump to say it tomorrow, we're not in war, is ridiculous. It's out of context. So when Peter and Paul and John give advice about excommunicating people, they were in a war, a literal war. And so that's why it was given. 
Today we're not in that war anymore. People want to say we are, but we're not. We haven't been for 2,000 years. Get it? Okay, we're going to get through it. Number three. I've read it, I've read it a dozen times. 1 Corinthians 15. This is the age we're in. Really quickly. But now Christ is risen from the dead. Here's the context. Paul says, Christ is risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man according to his order, Christ the first fruits, afterward they that are Christ's at his coming. So, all right, then comes the end. Well, we can prove and we have proven through scripture that Christ came, 70 AD. And then comes the end, it says. When Christ will, at his coming, when he comes, then comes the end. Well, if he came in 70 AD, what ended? Everything that 1 Corinthians uh, uh, 10, 11 was talking about. The end of that age came. It's all done. And so we don't have all the need for that wartime advice any longer because we're not in it. We're in an age when, it says, then cometh the end, when God will have put, delivered up the kingdom, when Jesus will have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and all power, for God must reign till he's put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death, which is why I believe there is no more uh, lake of fire death anymore. And, and, and this certainly isn't talking about physical death. And for God has put all things under his feet. And this is, and when all things shall be subdued unto God, then also the son himself will be subject to him that put all things under him that God may be all in all. This is where we're at. This is our age. The victory's been had. God's all in all. There's no need for playing church this way anymore on this side. No need. We don't need to do it. All right. Finally, there's one more evidence and we'll wrap it up today. Number four, the writer of Hebrews, chapter 12, he describes after the end of all things has come this way. Yet once more, God says, indicates the removal of what is shaken. Why he says this is God has said in the passage before, once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heaven. Yet once more, the first passages were about him shaking Sinai when Moses came and received the uh, Ten Commandments. Sinai shook. Now he says, yet once more, I'm going to come and I'm going to shake everything up again. And he says this phrase once more, the writer of Hebrews says this phrase once more indicates the removal of what was shaken. What was shaken? Everything of that age. Everything in the Old and New Testament, shaken. Once more, God's going to do it. When? At the coming of Christ. It will be shaken as of what has been made in order that what cannot be shaken will remain. What God says is he will leave an unshakable kingdom. That kingdom cannot be shaken. Why? Because it's administered from on high. The kingdom dwells in believers' hearts. It's not a material kingdom that we live by. We live in an unshakable kingdom that is spiritual and it's headquartered in heaven. That's why Jesus said, look at the kingdom of God. You guys are wandering around looking for the kingdom of God. Low here, low there. He said, the kingdom of God is within you. That's where it dwells. If the kingdom is within us and if he writes his laws upon our hearts and our minds and if the end comes once Christ has had the victory and God is all in all. We live in the most completely different time than when those passages I read to you were mentioned. We live in a time and have lived in this time for nearly 2,000 years where the Holy Spirit is moving. Men and women are being touched by it. They're seeking God by the Spirit. And all those rules and games and things that people do to each other in the name of religion have died. They're over. Complete. That's the context. Next week, we're going to get to the external reasons why this idea that we can pull scriptures and use them upon people is still valid is absurd. Any calls? No calls? 
All right, no calls, you lazy rats. We're going to wrap it up for this year, 2017. We love you. Keep searching for the truth. Don't let these people put you in religious bondage. Don't let people say you should be ostracizing other people and imparting ways with the sinners and, and getting fearful of the heretic. We're all heretical in some way or another. Geez, we'd be so terrified without apostles. We all make up stuff. But the Spirit is here working with us, pulling us in as a unity of believers from every walk, every lifestyle, in Christ's name. There's no need for judgment anymore. There's no need for anger. There's no need for division. It is unity among all people because God is working in that. They will, they will attack this. They'll give you every reason. They'll recite those passages. All, they just thrive on the stuff like the Pharisees and uh, scribes of old did. Don't let them do it to you. Just ignore it and move on into the light, and you'll be blessed. Out!